The New Testament reading is taken from Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 1, verses 11 to 20. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed to me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory for ever and ever. Amen. This change I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Good morning and uh, Happy New Year. I reckon I can just about still get away with with, uh, saying that. And it's good to be with you for the first time in 2022. My title is The Worst Sinner of Them All. And as you will have gathered, our passage is uh, 1 Timothy Chapter 1, verses 12 to 20, and that is there on page 991 in the Bibles uh, that uh, you should have in front of you. So it'd be great if you could have that open so you can see where we're going. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your living word. Thank you that you do speak to us just what we need to hear. So please open our ears by your Holy Spirit to hear you now and soften our hearts to believe and obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was a student, I had a friend in the air training corps who was learning to fly. And uh, it seemed to me as I heard him talk about this, that this this was uh, something that was fraught with life-threatening danger. And I asked him what would happen if you were at the controls of a plane and you failed to hold a steady course. Could you crash the plane? And he said, yes, but you don't. You don't do that. And it's the same when you're driving a car. And it dawned on me that what he was saying was true. And if you were driving in heavy traffic, for instance, and you deliberately turned the steering wheel away from your steady line, you would cause havoc, and at the very least, severe damage to yourself and to others. Well, whether you're steering a plane, a car, or as we shall see, a boat, it is vital to hold your course. When we're disciples of Christ, trusting and obeying him, it's vital that we hold our course. And that is the message of this next passage from Paul's first letter to Timothy that we're looking at this morning. Uh, Last week, Ken steered us through the first part of chapter 1 with its strong warning about the importance of true doctrine, true teaching, and the need to steer well clear of the dangers of false teaching. And now the apostle develops that theme in a different way, 
focusing on his own experience of being dramatically turned away from error and to the truth. Paul's focus here is on Jesus above all, and then on his own experience, and on Timothy, and on two characters who have gone badly off the rails, to bring in a, a train analogy to add to the planes, cars, and boats, and their names are Hymenaeus and Alexander. You could say Paul is writing to Timothy using four pronouns, him, me, them, and you. Him, that's Jesus, me, that's Paul, them, that's Hymenaeus and Alexander, and you, that's Timothy. So I have four headings take, taking each of those in turn, starting with Jesus, then turning to Paul, and then Hymenaeus and Alexander, and lastly, we'll take a look at Timothy himself. So first, Jesus came to save sinners. This is right at the core of what Paul wants Timothy and us as well to hold tight to. And it's at the heart of this section there in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That is, get this. Are you paying attention? This, in a nutshell, is what Paul, back in verse 11, has called the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And that's in contrast to all the other gospels that the false teachers keep pumping out, whether they're outside the church or inside. Every now and again, Paul does give us these little gold nuggets capturing the essence of the gospel. Jesus is Lord. Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, as he says here. That is what it's all about. And we must not stray off in other directions. Why did Amanda Staveley appoint Eddie Howe as the manager of Newcastle United? Her primary purpose was clear and direct, to keep Newcastle up, to keep Newcastle in the premiership. That's it. Why did God the Father send Christ Jesus into the world? His purpose was clear and direct, to save sinners. So many nowadays in the West are denying the uniqueness of Christ, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Son of God. So many deny that he came, God made man, God made flesh. So many deny that we are a world of sinners. Now, of course, everybody complacently agrees that nobody's perfect, but that's not the point here. The point is that we are a world gone right off the rails in radical rebellion against God our creator, rejecting his rule. We're in dire straits headed for hell. God's wrath is coming. We need to be rescued. We are not basically okay as we are. The message of the gospel is not that all would be well if only we realized how wonderful we are and how much God loves us just as we are with no need, no need for deep change. I don't know how anyone could think that. For instance, 
after the last century in which well over 100 million people were killed in war. In the First World War, 20,000 were slaughtered on day one of the Battle of the Somme, which saw over a million casualties in total. But that message of an all-affirming love that demands no repentance and requires no change is the liberal gospel that since that time has swept the Western mainline denominations and shipwrecked the faith of even more millions. Richard Niebuhr summed up this liberal so-called gospel so well when he said, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That is not the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which the apostle was entrusted. The gospel that we must hang on to is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. How? By dying and rising and ascending to the throne of heaven and pouring out his spirit and promising that he will one day return as judge and saviour and king. That gospel of redemption is the only gospel that can transform the world and turn around, turn around lost lives. It is the only true gospel. So is our grasp of the gospel clear and sharp? It needs to be. Or our witness will be drained of all spiritual power. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Secondly, Paul, the great sinner, was converted for the glory of God. This is what wraps around Paul's spithy summary of the gospel. So take a look at verses 12 to 14, and then uh, from the end of uh, verse, 17, uh, verse 15 through to 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory for ever and ever. Amen. So here's the kind of classic testimony, if you like, with Paul describing what he was like before he met Jesus, the transformation that Jesus worked in him, and what he was like now that Christ had taken hold of him. And twice he calls himself the foremost, the worst of sinners. Comparisons are not really the point, but he wasn't exaggerating 
about his own life. He had certainly plumbed the depths of sin in the name of his twisted religion. Maybe the nearest kind of contemporary equivalent would be something like a leading member of ISIS persecuting and killing Christians as rapidly and comprehensively as opportunity allowed in the name of his God. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 13, Paul says of himself, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And when he says that Christ showed him mercy because he had acted ignorantly in unbelief, he is not excusing himself. Far from it. Otherwise he wouldn't have been the worst of sinners and he wouldn't have needed mercy. But he hadn't committed what Jesus called the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He hadn't rejected Christ when he knew who he was and turned his back once and for all on his only hope of being saved from sin. The grace of Christ had overflowed into his life, filling him with faith in Jesus and with love for him and for his new fellow believers and for the lost who needed the gospel. John Bunyan, the Bedford pastor who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, called his own spiritual autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Title borrowed, you might say, from Paul's autobiography here. I remember one weekend a while ago, Vivian and I were driving into Hexham along the Tyne, as we've done very many times. As we got close, we saw an astonishing scene that we'd never seen before. The river had completely overflowed its banks and it looked as if it was filling the whole valley. It's an unforgettable sight. Paul knew that his heart had been flooded by the grace and the love of God and he had been utterly changed. Now he was strong in Christ, faithful, forgiven, serving, believing, loving. He was converted. Conversions happen for a purpose. John Newton famously wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton, one-time slave trader, was converted by God to engage in a lifelong powerful pastoral ministry, not least the writing of that hymn. The Apostle Paul was converted to spend and expend his life for the sake of those he had hated. I received mercy for this reason, says Paul that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him. Paul's conversion displays to the world that no one is beyond the reach of the grace of Christ. If the grace of God could reach him, it can reach anybody. And maybe that is something you yourself need to hear. The grace of Christ will overflow into the life of the very worst of sinners. If only we will receive it by faith. And as Paul says in verse 17, it is all to the glory of God. So first, Jesus came to save sinners. Secondly, Paul, the great sinner, was converted for the glory of God. Thirdly, some, by rejecting the lessons of Paul's life and teaching, 
reject Jesus. So this is Paul's point at the end of this section, the last part of verse 19 and verse 20, where he says, by rejecting this, that is by rejecting Paul's charge to hold fast to the faith, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may not learn that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, we don't know much about these two, but it's clear that they had once been followers of Jesus. They once had faith in Christ, but they had shipwrecked their faith and blasphemously rejected Jesus, having once believed in him. What does Paul mean when he says that he'd handed them over to Satan? That must mean excommunication. That is, they had been excluded from the life of the church because they had rejected the very basis of its life. And this was done in the hope that they would come to their senses and turn back to Jesus again. They were never going to learn that lesson if their blasphemy was treated as of little consequence. We do need to take to heart the seriousness of what we are about in the life of the church. It's not a game that we're playing. What we believe, what we teach, how we live is of eternal consequence. Vivian and I visited the Titanic experience in Belfast. It's a brilliant exhibition. If ever there was a shipwreck, the Titanic was it. And a shipwreck is a frightening thing. People die. Lessons need to be learned. When I was a student, I was involved with organizing an evangelistic event, and our speaker was a brilliant preacher and a leading pastor in the city. Years later, he made complete shipwreck of his faith and in process caused untold damage to the faith of many others. Shipwrecks are shocking. Ten years ago, this very week, on the 13th of January 2012, the Costa Concordia was wrecked on an Italian island. 32 people died. The captain was later convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to 16 years in prison. Shipwrecks like that of Hymenaeus and Alexander are warnings to us. Some, by rejecting the lessons of Paul's life and teaching, reject Jesus. Don't do it. And don't come under the spell of those who do. Hold on to the faith. So fourthly, Timothy must be like Paul and fight for his faith, and so must we. This is verse 18. And the start of verse 19, where Paul says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. It's moving, isn't it, to see the depth of Paul's care for his young team member, Timothy, his apprentice, in ministry. In chapter 1, verse 2, he's called him my true child in the faith. And here again, 
Paul calls Timothy, my child. In his second letter to Timothy, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes to Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. So here in the first letter, in the light of what we might call Timothy's ordination, the formal laying on of hands, and the prophetic commissioning that Timothy had been given, Paul urges him to stick to his task and to wage the good warfare, to fight the good fight. I saw a documentary about the Queen. The Queen herself is, of course, a remarkable example of perseverance in the service of Christ and of others. But that program also included a touching interview with a, a very old Chelsea pensioner. This old soldier had fought in the Korean War and in one battle they had found themselves fighting against overwhelming odds. But they fought on. Twice he was hit and wounded and yet still he fought on and he survived and he was awarded the Victoria Cross and the young Queen Elizabeth pinned it on him. It was the very first medal that she ever awarded. They were both, he said, very nervous. We are in a spiritual war, fought not with worldly weapons, but with the weapons of faith, love, the gospel, the word of God. Each one of us has a different section of the front where we're put to fight. What's your own particular battle of faith right now? Where are the attacks coming in our lives that we need to watch out for? Do we have a good conscience? Are we keeping short accounts with God, confessing our sins, allowing the abounding grace of God to overflow our lives again and again? We are to stand fast. We are to keep going. We are to steer a steady course. Like Timothy, we are to wage the good warfare, to fight the good fight of the faith. We are to hold on to the faith. Let's bow our heads to pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for Jesus who came into the world to save sinners like Paul and like us. And we thank you too for your redeemed servant, the Apostle Paul. We thank you for the example of his faith, for the challenge of his teaching. Teach us, we pray, never to reject it, never to make shipwreck of our lives. Have mercy on us. And help us by the power of your spirit to fight the good fight of our faith to the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.